0: This, so this this is, setup's very curious. Yep. Uh, are we live streaming right
1: now? Uh, hold on one second. This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Coaching Program. I am sitting here with Mike Nelson. We're also here with Dr. James Heathers. Mike's actually uh, known James for a while, so I'm going to let him actually introduce him to you guys. Yeah, I first
2: met, uh, I think I was actually reading some of your stuff online. Probably was it three or four? Four years ago or something now. Um, so James is very... Say again? It feels like more. It might have been longer. That's, that's usually what people say if they know me. So <laughs> um, yeah, so he was very helpful with uh, some of the research I actually did with HRV and also keeping me sane in the entire um, process. But he has a very neat background in terms of working in different fields. So if you want to Give yourself a little introduction and your background there, James. Thanks for being on the program tonight. Okay. Um, We'll work our way backwards. Um, I'm a postdoctoral
0: fellow right now, and I work primarily in cardiology, doing heart rate respiration coordination stuff. Um, My whole PhD was on HRV, and I did a master's before that. It was in cognitive psychology. Uh, and some other stuff that was in exercise business and sports science and a normal undergraduate degree before that. So put in uh, that's, that's the last 15 years. Put in uh, associated and relevant work in around the degrees uh, and that brings us to right now, which is what you want to talk about, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I think one of the things that, you know, because we definitely want to get into things with you as it relates to psychology um, and and things of that nature. But probably the most relevant thing related to our relationship with customers and part of the thing that we're trying to get coaches, um, the majority of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be gym owners. Um, They're going to be people that run businesses. And we're obviously big into heart rate variability as it relates to rest and recovery. Can you kind of give the 101 version of that, right? Because I think there's a lot of gym owners that don't have a good idea of even what it is. And now that you're seeing devices at a relatively low price point, that's fairly easy to use. Um, I think it's something that that can be real helpful for, you know, a lot of, lot of variants as it relates to athletes. Is he not hearing me?
0: Hear, all right, James? Sorry, I had some very serious audio trouble there for a second. Um, you said you'd like to, the the one hundred and one version of HRV, and I lost after I lost everything after that. I'm afraid.
1: Well, that's fine. We'll let's start there. I guess we're having audio trouble. Mike, can you talk to yeah, him? Maybe, so maybe he can hear so you better me. One
2: hundred and one version of HRV. Okay, should we should start with just that? Yep. Yep.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> always, always have a great deal of difficulty uh, getting getting this down somewhere uh, longer than ten seconds, but shorter than about ten minutes. Um, <laughs> It's, yeah, there's, a, there's, 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 there's slightly too many details. Um, all right, I'll put, it, I'll put it in research perspective to start with. If you looked at all the research on heart rate variability in a given year, there would be somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 academic papers published uh, in a calendar year these days. So it's a topic that spans medical physics and biomedical engineering and stuff that we might be more directly interested in like exercise physiology, uh, different aspects of public health and biomedicine and psychology. Uh, psychologists are, are pretty fond of using it uh, as, a, as an adjunct to psychological states. Um, so it's, it's extremely popular and the reason that it's the reason that it's popular basically is because it's accessible. Uh, it's the same reason that we have access to it in a, from a sports science perspective is the fact that it's very easy to get. Now, what it actually is is just any way of calculating the variation in beat to beat intervals over time, beat being heartbeat. Now you can do that with the electrical signal of the heart, or you can do that with a pulse signal um they both they they both have a relatively good degree of accuracy uh, depending on how you measure them and what it gives you is uh, a reasonably good and from a from a medical perspective a reasonably cheap way of accessing your autonomic state at any given point in time so There's lots of far more complicated methods that we have of measuring autonomic state. Uh, They're a lot more expensive. Um, Some of them give us a lot better information, but none of them are as accessible or as as cheap as HRV, and that's why it's used in sports science. There's a, a lot of better ways to measure how you are at any given point in time. It just costs a lot of money And uh, you need to do fun things like punch a hole in your leg or fit yourself full of interesting drugs. Uh, The reason that it works so well is because the change in these beat-to-beat intervals over time is more or less entirely run by your autonomic nervous system, which is your background nervous system. It's all of your... Global bodily functions that are operating outside of cognitive control, and in a in a in a sports or exercise biz sense, what this generally means is that we are indexing either work at any given point in time, because uh, HIV will go down with aerobic output, uh, or we're indexing recovery. And how, how, how specific are we going to get with uh, branches of nervous system stuff?
2: Yeah, so why do people want to, why do they care about their autonomic state for so people that aren't really familiar Everyone with Everyone has that frozen. Form? Can you hear me now? It's like a bad cell phone commercial. <laughs> uh, I just kept talking there. We heard you. Can you hear me? <laughs>
0: I just kept talking there because you were reacting to anything I said. I think it might be the picture freezing.
1: No, oh, I
2: might have been frozen.
1: I mean, um, can you hear us now or no?
2: I can. All right. So why do people care about their autonomic state? Why is that important for people that are training or coaching other people? And what exactly does that entail? Uh,
0: basic. Basically, uh, the, the HIV is a good index of cardiac parasympathetic outflow. We know what cardiac means, but parasympathetic is the branch of the autonomic nervous system that generally is responsible for functions at rest. So if you have a lot of that, if you have a lot of HRV, uh, generally you have a lot of modulation of your heartbeat that is only present when you have a high parasympathetic outflow. What it basically means is the more HRV you have, the better recovered you are, probably the better better slept you are, and low HRV goes with uh, things like systemic stress and overtraining. And because systemic stress and overtraining are quite reliable and can be really profound as far as physical stimuli goes, I mean, they're they're much more, in in a bodily sense, they're much more significant than something like normal life stress, uh, you're moving, your job is terrible, etc. Over, overtraining is much, more, is much more noticeable when it comes to measuring a physical signal. Um, that's why we use HRV to track it.
2: So if someone then is, if their HRV is going up, they're becoming more parasympathetic, correct? Because that always trips people up a little bit. And if it's going down, they're becoming more sympathetic and they're becoming more stressed. So you're trying to look at that balance due to training and lifestyle, correct? Yeah,
0: that's that's the extent of it. There's there's a hundred qualifications we can make to that yeah. <laughs> because, uh, because because overtraining is so it's it's when when it happens properly, it's an extremely significant stressor, which means that we, uh, HIV is quite crude and it's affected by a lot of different things, but it does mean that we can measure it.
2: So, for you said HRV is affected by a whole bunch of things. What are so for someone who's kind of training in the gym and kind of doing a quote unquote normal lifestyle? What would be some of the things that could affect their HRV?
0: Pretty much every normal activity of daily living shows up at some point in time, Um, and so do any. Any, any normal demographic kind of variable will give you a class that you'll fit into. So there's gender and age differences to start with, which are quite profound. Uh, it goes down generally. Uh, there's more than more than one kind. Of the pattern is different between men and women. You generally have less HRV as you age.
2: Do um, so women have higher HRV or do guys have higher HRV? General uh,
0: generally, men have higher low-frequency HRV, but let's not get into frequency. Stuff. <laughs> That'd be a frequency
2: domain one.
0: I saw, but, yeah. I saw both Mike's, Mike's eyebrows go up there, so we're, we're not going to go into frequency analysis. Um, you, you, have, you have generally you have more HRV in the morning. You have less immediately after, uh, immediately after athletic activity. Um, you have substantially less uh, over time immediately after heavy-duty uh, anaerobic activity because of uh, post-exercise oxygen. Yeah. Um, water consumption affects it. Bladder filling uh, really, really affects it. Um, food does as well. Not so much. But the, the, the simple fact that all of these uh, all of these normal activities have their own uh, autonomic management systems and the systems have a lot of crossover so it makes it kind of difficult to measure a lot of the time uh, because the, the reading that you get is literally affected by everything um, which which feeds into why most most recommendations for measuring it over time recommend you measure at least once a day and you try to be as consistent as possible now, there's there's been a, a trend recently towards people who uh, you should you should measure it first thing in the morning and you uh, uh, about the same time a day every day, and uh, you should try and get, keep all the, the, the factors in doing that completely consistent. From a research perspective, that is that's bang on. That's that's exactly what we want. Um, when we create laboratory conditions, uh, obviously we, we don't we can't get people the moment they wake up. And get them into a laboratory. That's obviously impossible. So we try and recreate that by dictating what people can and can't eat, and what time they do an experiment, uh, and what they've had to drink, uh, and what medication they're taking, and how tired they are, and uh, how much exercise they've done. And we have to we have to control all of those things when we have a sample of people doing an experiment. When you're just measuring yourself, you can control the vast majority of them by just doing measurement first thing in the morning. So uh, if anyone's got a protocol that they're using to do that, and they're doing morning measurement, that is uh, that's the right thing to do. Basically, I don't think there's a
1: better way. So, yeah. so one question that off. one question that I had because we we actually for all of our coaching clients um, in our group coaching program, we give them HRV devices, and uh, we want that uh, the iFleet. i-fleet Um, Ah, uh and (laughs) and so that's been really popular now a lot of people just regular folks will ask well why can't i get it off of my fitbit and there was a company uh called Fitlinks out of boston that was trying to do it with amp strip i don't know if you're familiar with that and then they ultimately struggled go ahead
0: i consulted on that project i thought the build was very cool um it was a, it was a lovely I got to, I got to pull one apart uh, when I when I saw it at the um, at, at the office um, That was a lovely piece of hardware uh, and I have no insight into what happened to it because I don't have on, I don't have ongoing contacts uh, with the people who work there It's perfectly possible to do that now to, to build an ECG, like a, a, a proper heart rate monitor, a medical heart rate monitor, as opposed to a pulse monitor, it's possible to build one of those into a Band-Aid-sized thing. Uh, and there's a few companies that are also doing similar sorts of builds. Um, I don't know why they changed their mind, but Fitlinks is primarily a business-to-business company. So they may simply have reconsidered their decision to sell the hardware in the consumer market.
1: But isn't what it that problem, isn't it Well the is sorry Isn't it kind of a difficult thing to do though right cuz like you know I have a Fitbit on right mm-hmm. and and essentially it's not as precise as something like an iFleet or an EKG monitor or whatever Can you talk a little bit about that of you know why can't I just get this from my Fitbit
0: Um you need a certain degree of precision when you when you do this. Um, this. The the thing that I know, about, I did a whole study in 2013 that was with the software that is in the iSleep, and looked at the the pattern of the raw data that it had the, the thing that it produces that is behind the algorithm that gives you the numbers, and that checks out. A hundred percent. It's, it's, it's good quality. The the assumptions that uh, Simon's made when he stuck the software and hardware together make sense on a research perspective. So I can say that's good. I don't think there's other people doing pulse monitoring stuff who really do that. Um, the, the other advantage, and this is, I'm going to have to get a little bit technical, but it's only going to last for 30 seconds. The other advantage is the, the isolate plug-in finger thing that you have has a, has a polling rate that's really high for a pulse monitor. Now, other, other builds are not as accurate. They're not sampling as often to try and create a heartbeat to make a series of heartbeats over time. And that only matters a little when everything's okay. But when you start to, when you start to sample slowly, but it's like anything else, when you start to lose precision, Uh, the individual beats, you start to lose accuracy of the whole system. Now, other things may be good, but in my experience with, uh, especially working with uh, corporate clients and looking at the real guts of these systems, there's absolutely no reason why anyone would want to make it accurate. Uh, It's not a focus for the people who are building these devices. The vast majority of the time they're trying to build something that gives you your heart rate, over time, so you can do an aerobic training zone. That is 90% of what they're considering when they build the hardware in the first place. So if I was, uh, look, if I was if I was in your position and I had to give something to someone to do it, I'd absolutely use the iFleet because I know it works. And most of these things are at about the same sort of price point, um, so look, there's just, there's no, there's no reason to argue with accuracy. I you, yeah, you can, you know, I, I can get a lot more precious about accurate on, on a research level. We have a, a, a normal ECGs that don't do. Uh, it's it's not 500 hertz. It's more like forty thousand hertz. But you, there's there's a whole there's a real big drop off at some point in time with how much accuracy you need. And you've you've picked something that uh, fits the bill very well.
1: Yeah, I think you know what people see is that there's a lot of things that are measuring their heart rate, right? So they've got a heart rate strap or they've got, you know, light sensors on their wrist or something like this. And what I don't think that they understand is that it's actually a pretty difficult problem. Am I correct in stating that? Or do you see it as relatively simple? Uh, If you're you're me
0: and you write your own software to deal with it, it's (laughs) relatively straightforward. If, you're, if you've got a consumer device that's giving you a number and it's going, oh, you've got a 37, well done, you've got a 37. Interpreting your 37 can be challenging. Uh, you just have to start with the right hardware, basically.
1: Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I, I think the thing that's great about, you know, the price points and you know i i like simon as much as the next guy but as far as i'm concerned what i would like to see for clients is kind of measurable data that we can interpret and then give them some feedback on right that's that's the the general idea and i think for most coaches that's what it is when the athlete was you know mid two hundred dollars you know it wasn't really that accessible now we're looking at sixty nine ninety five for a finger monitor. I think that's mm. within the realm of any anybody's accessibility, and yep. I think that uh, if if you have a client as an example, like one of the things that I was going to ask you about, um, it seems like day to day training. There's a few things that, that people concern themselves with. I mean, obviously, you know, in the case of the athlete, we'll talk about that because that's something that I know fairly well, right? And just in terms of like the general interpretation. But you got red, amber, green. What, talk to me a little bit about if you're training do you want to get to red occasionally? I mean, wouldn't that be a sign that you've stressed your system enough to potentially adapt to it? Or is that something that you would kind of want to stay away from? Hmm.
0: Okay, this is where... That's a really good question. I think the the serious answer to that is this is where auto-regulation comes in. I've Trained with people who are unkillable and have gone way through the the, the just, uh you know, if someone if someone turn, turns up at the gym and they're going to go, oh, I'm just going to cut a second session because my friend is here. We're, we're, we're going to do some other stuff. You know, they do an extra hour and a half because they have the time and they feel like it. And then they wake up the next morning and go to boxing. And then they're bored in the afternoon, so they lift weights again. Now, obviously, <laughs> they, they have a lot of time on their hands. But you, any any individual person is going to find that your, your responses to uh, any, any given number, any given measurement, a state that you have that you can measure, is going to be differently predictive for, for anyone. Now, I, I know mine simply because I have a house full of devices that go big. I, 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 I don't connect with them all the time, but also I mean I've spent years in labs where you, you can you can just grab something off a shelf and measure whatever the hell you like. I know that I'm perfectly fine and everything's more or less exactly okay until all of a sudden I cliff. And I wake up with a resting pulse not at sixty, but of more like eighty five, and I have sixty percent of the HIV that I had previously. Either I'm absolutely fine, or I'm completely tanked. Well, now, a lot of people have more of a continuum. So, so you you would you you need to figure that out. Um, the, 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 when when people ask me about this, and it's, it's a question that people have asked before, and it's it's, it's a difficult one. I always think of the the, the, the stories of the Bulgarian weightlifters training in the 70s where basically the people that they keep in the program are the people who can continue to survive and continue to make progress when they're absolutely destroyed. Yeah. When they're just horrible, just uh, sore, sore joints and gray and tired and just in con- continual overreaching all the time. And they were the people that they kept. Now, you can't look at a training method like that and go, well, that's the best way to make progress. Obviously, what we should do is get everyone and beat them to death all the time. It'll be tremendously effective. As opposed to that's the best way to make progress if you are just bulletproof. Right. Which obviously is. People exist on a continuum and you roll the rest of your life into something like that as uh as as a general consideration so some people have well some people don't have much sleep some people have twins with colic
1: so you're 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 bringing up a, a really good point because i think that one of the the challenges that that most of these gyms have right is they have a client and that client has a pain whether it be you know they're carrying excessive fat on their body or you know maybe sometimes they occasionally need to work out better but mostly it's aesthetically a problem, right? And they're trying to fix an aesthetic. And what you're saying is there's a lot of trial and error that needs to sort of happen in this process, and you have to be patient as it relates to trying things. One of the things, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Eat Reform. Perform. I'm sure Mike has had some discussion with you. But in general, what we try to do is actually our emphasis is more reverse dieting. And really kind of getting people to their peak state as it relates to athletic ability. And, you know, kind of getting their metabolism rolling. Through my experience with with HRV, which is fairly limited as it relates to yours. um, The biggest factors almost always aren't working out, right? It's almost always sleep. It's almost always stress it's almost always the kid waking you up in the middle of the night right and what i'll often see is that it's actually delayed one day right so like i'll wake up you know after four hours sleep my daughter wakes me up i do my hrv and it's like great you know best it's ever been and i'm like but i only slept four hours and then all of a sudden i have to get through the rest of that day i wake up the next day and then all of a sudden I see the red. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Um I would I would have to
0: speculate to talk about individual processes that could make that happen. Um, and we can't do that. But what can. I,
2: you can speculate. What? What's that? I said you can speculate. i give you permission.
1: A- <laughs> this is just a podcast oh, no, that like forty I'm this is like a podcast I'm that bad forty bad. people listen to. <laughs>
0: I'll, be, I'll do better than speculate. I'll be anecdotal as well, which is uh, no, something no, i am very real go no, beyond rarely... no, This is, um, I've had to fly a lot. Um, most scientists that go to conferences and travel around and do that stuff. And, and live in multiple cities have to, um, I hate planes and I can't sleep on them. The vast majority of the time I'm awake the whole time. If you ever flown to Australia, you'll know that the flight time to Australia, uh, especially from the continental United States, a lot of the time, if you get the good flight from Dallas, it is a 16-hour flight.
2: Yeah.
0: I do not I do not sleep for more than five or six minutes at a time for one of these things. I turn up in Australia, I'm absolutely fine immediately with a simple reason that I stay awake as long as I conveniently have to. The next day, I am a mess. And I can can go to sleep and wake up at the exact this is the correct jet lag time thing. Oh, I don't have any jet lag. I've gone to sleep at the right time and woken up at the right time. And I wake up and even if I just take my morning pulse it is 85. You do do have a grace period before you're completely ruined like that, but you do eventually pay for it. my my speculation is that there's something that there's it's it's probably an inflammatory process somewhere because simply because of the amount of time that it takes yeah, the delay yeah um, but there is there is there's definitely it definitely swings through and gets you um, Well, I'm not I'm not at all surprised to 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 find that you get your day off and you feel perfectly okay. But um, yeah, the the swing back is a real bitch on something like that. And how you you choose to deal with it, how you can deal with it and still remain functional um, is very much a matter of individual differences and circumstances. So most, most people who are training hard try to maintain all the other factors that they can control to stop stuff like that being as significant as it could
1: right
0: yeah so a lot of the time that's all you can control very few people are professional athletes who are making enough money to do athletic endeavor for a living everyone else has to live and uh you you cut the corners that you you have to to be alive i mean uh multiple jobs uh, m- multiple jobs, bad circumstances, and children are the other other heavy duty ones. You
1: know. Yeah. No. There's, I, there's
0: an awful. Lot of, sh- there's an awful lot of work on on how shift workers die early. Right. Very early. Now well, there's now a lot of research on that. It's really you're, scary.
1: You're bringing up an interesting point that I bring up to a lot of CrossFit Games athletes. One of the things hmm. that happens with CrossFit Games athletes is you have kind of this big, you know, event that can potentially get you a lot of exposure on television and potentially make you a quarter million dollars, okay? But there's also a lot of these other little events all throughout the world. And a lot of the time sponsors ask them at very little pay to go to these events. And it's sort of like what you're saying, if, you're, if you know that air flights aren't the best, if you know that you don't sleep well in a hotel, you know, all these different things. So now all of a sudden you go to this event, you know, which is three, four hours away from your home. You're in an uncomfortable place for three hours, and uh, three days, and then you come back and it might take you days to recover from that bad state. And, you know, one of the arguments that I always make is That's why you don't see Rich Froning doing a lot of these things. You don't see the best of the best doing this kind of stuff because they want to be able to control their environment. Is that sort of what you were saying? Uh, it makes it makes
0: perfect sense. I mean, they, they they don't have to. Mike as a tall person can relate to how uncomfortable domestic flight can be.
2: Um, yeah, 13 hours in can... Japan sucked.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Tradition. Yeah. Don't, don't be, don't be from Australia. If you, if you don't like air travel, <laughs> um, look, you, you, uh, I've, i I agree with you completely. Uh, it's, it's a problem for me. If, I mean, if you, you, you're in the circumstances that require you to endure them to come up rather than being there in the first place. Some of, some of these things are self perpetuating if I had to do stuff like that and, and work a normal job and take time off. So I imagine there's a lot of people who are flying out of somewhere Friday night, probably competing on a Saturday.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, maybe checking into a hotel in a town they've never been, uh, before at a, a 11 on a Friday night, waking up Saturday morning and trying to get a cab in a town they've never been to before to get to a venue. They don't know where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Strongman, Strongman is exactly the same when it, when it happens to think. Um, you know, if you if you're six foot nine, uh, a lot of the time you, you get to do uh, two or three nationals nationals things a year, but uh, <laughs> everyone else is working
1: for a living. But see the pro the problem with what you're saying, just to interrupt you for just a second. The reward in strongman isn't very high, right? Whereas None. the reward right. in CrossFit actually tends to be fairly high. And so if you have if if I'm talking to a person and they're 18th best in the world last year the difference between 18th, best, and, and first, you know, could be those four different events that they're going to that's not allowing them to recover and things of that nature. So that's sort of the the argument that I always make. So we do try to kind of keep this this down to about an hour. We did get started a little bit late. Um, when Mike started talking to me about HRV and, and, and what you'd be talking about, he started talking about the psychological implications of HRV and the the relationship there and that like i gotta say as kind of just a normal person who's a pretend nerd um you know i, I didn't see the relationship talk to me because it sounds like that that's kind of a big deal uh, the psychology research yeah
0: yeah look that's that's where i started um there's a Obviously, when uh, the, the, the the interest in HIV for, for research started with directly cardiac stuff, but moved fairly quickly into different aspects of human interaction, for for a, a number of reasons. Um, the the main one being. There are there's there's a series of hypotheses about what what you can measure about autonomic outflow and what a what a person's doing, so the, the, especially with regards to the the emotional content or what they're doing at any given point in time. Uh, there's there's relationships with emotion, there's relationships with empathy, uh, and there's deficits when you, especially with anxiety, is a big one as well. Uh, you See something of an HIV deficit with depression, but I'm it's 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 less straightforward. So it's not simply a matter of physical stresses. Uh, you have look in, in the in the psychophysiological sphere. It's it's really difficult to sum it all up. Um. Oh. A lot of because this is the, the problem is that there's, there's a lot of central theories on this, and I believe parts of them and I don't believe other parts of them, uh, and they summarize extremely poorly. But basically, as much as uh, autonom, autonom, the autonomic nervous system is involved in physical activity, uh, it's also involved in emotional, face to face, human interactive activity as well. Um, how that works a lot of the time, I'm hugely skeptical about a lot of the stuff that people publish, but there are some really very solid and straightforward results, uh, especially with any psychological condition that has an element of anxiety or panic. Those things show up really clearly in HIV. Can
2: you, can what do you, you see there?
0: Yeah. Um, you, the vast majority of the time in, in any situation where you are in anxious anticipation of something, uh, you see a deficit. You see HIV go down. And that, is, that, gen, that generalizes fairly well over different conditions and different kinds of studies. And that's one of the central components of the, the, the concept of what anxiety is in the first place. It's, a, it's worrying about something that you can't control that is prospective, and it, it seems like it seems like it has a relationship.
2: Any? any? If I have a client who um, has anxiety, and I know their baseline HRV is not real high, would increasing their baseline HRV over time give them more of a? Kind of a buffer zone to help with those um, possibly events or things that they feel anxiety about. You don't ask easy questions, do you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's
0: that's the kind of thing where we if we wanted to answer that we try and we try and formalize it in some general sense and find a sample of people and study it. Right. Um, I, I try not to think of of. Uh, heart rate variability over time is a kind of a reserve of something that you can build that will go out and build resilience in other areas. It's the difference between it being a phenomenon and an epiphenomenon. I
2: so what's consider- the difference for those two for people well,
0: listening? In this, sense, uh, in this sense, I don't think that if, if you go and you, you increase your HIV by whatever reason, <clears throat> I don't think that's meaningfully transferring into other aspects of your life. I think it only. I think it only works the other way around. So what would if be an
2: example you, the other way around?
0: Well, if you if you if you're continually tired all the time, and you and you get more sleep when your HIV improves, that's reasonable and straightforward. Um, if you're anxious though, and you deliberately seek to increase your HIV by whatever means, I don't think it has a
2: reverse relationship on anxiety. Yeah. So, so not a positive transfer. Right, It would be another way of kind of saying that if we yeah, didn't, didn't speak.
0: Yeah, the, I think the, 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 the directionality is only going one way. It's a window that lets us look in. It's not a lever that we can pull for other reasons. It's not something that you can set. Now, there are theories that say it is, and I say the theories are rubbish. Mm. Um, but I'm a skeptical gentleman because that's what people pay me for.
2: Sure. So a technical question, like Forge's polyvagal type stuff, not to go down too far of a deep rabbit hole, but... yeah, or I, I, I like
0: Steve, but um, Steve, Steve is gorgeous. Um, uh, that theory is extremely interesting, but it's also not 1997 anymore. Um, we are about to <laughs> nerf way too hard for the purpose of this conversation, Mike. Um, that, look, that's one of these things. Theories theories have to exist and be wrong so things can progress in the first place.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, there was an excellent paper that was um, just... Uh, the, the, the basis of why polyvagal theory should work in the first place. Uh, Edward Taylor wrote this up in 2007 or so, and if you read it, and I don't think people are particularly, who do HIV are particularly interested in physiology. If you read it, you can see that the... The, the, the constructed, the assumptive basis of polyvagal theory is not amazing. And I think the arguments that are made in that paper are pretty reasonable. Now, that's 10 years ago, but people still talk about this theory because it's easy to, it's easy to assume the theory is right, and it's difficult to look at the phylogenetic
2: details of why it isn't. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes it's from Peter Lemon. He's like, just because it's logical doesn't mean that it's physiological. Right, so we can set up some sort of constructs of stuff that sounds really cool and well, geez, that must work, but then all the experiments mm-hmm. over time tend to prove it wrong. So So yeah, look, just because it's convenient doesn't mean a dancing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so one of the things that, you know, kind of going back to the psychological impacts, um, because you know, I think most of us know people that that deal with profound anxiety, whether it be brought upon themselves through work or stress or, you know, or something even, you know, deeper. The, the circumstances that you can kind of get, you know, in line would seem favorable. Like for instance, if you can get regular sleep, if, you know, the one, the one thing that I often say, you know, like I'll ask people, you know, where are your car keys? And then they'll say, you know, well, they're, you know, right next to the door and where were your car keys last year? And the, the, the idea being is that the more components that you have in your life nailed down, the less stress that you'll have as it relates to all these various balls that are in the air. Right. So in theory, I I, I hate even asking you this question, you know, because I know that you don't deal in speculation, but, but, In general, though, right, I mean, the more things you have locked down, the better it's going to be as it relates to progress. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because we have a lot of people sleep four hours a night. They've been eating 1100 calories for most of their life. You know, they've got all these different things that are contrary to what is good to be a thriving human being. And then they're like, but I can't figure out why I can't gain muscle you know and you know so can you speak a doctor could write prescription for a t-bone
2: right right that's what i had for dinner yeah
1: but yeah so what are your thoughts on that because i mean it seems that if you can control a lot of elements that in theory that of course makes things better and that's of course what we we help people do you know with meal planning with you know timing of their workouts thoughts on programming things of this nature but most people don't have acute problems they have very simple problems but they don't make it a priority you know to get good sleep or to you know make sure that they're you know eating you know whatever makes sense for them
0: Look, the, the the reason why a, a lot of people uh, I mean, take 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 any individual person who says I, I have i have a a fitness goal or a weight loss goal or something uh, and say what are what are three what, what 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 would be your top three pieces of advice that you would give yourself the vast majority of people even people who are well out of shape or have no intention of following the advice in the first place can give themselves extremely good advice. That's there's an, uh, an analogy in, in in doing science in general where we have good ideas all the time on what would constitute a good study. You know, they, 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 comparing these things would be an amazing idea. Let's, if we look at this and this, but we control for this, that's a that's a yeah. All of those ideas are free and none of them mean anything at all really it's all about execution and people find it a lot easier to execute when they're given an external plan that comes with the validation of the fact that they are engaging in the process of doing it in the first place it's very difficult to give yourself orders
1: right well i think what you're hitting on is a really important part because i think that what a lot of people are really comfortable with is they'll say you know, it's also overwhelming or this is confusing. And I often challenge them on that and say, the reason why you're confused or overwhelmed is that's the easy place to be because then you're a victim and then the circumstance is happening to you rather than you happening on the circumstance,
0: right? Yes, be the verb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a, that's especially, um, Especially when I, I I ran lab stuff, and I would continually have people with, uh, who are who are uh, running running studies who need to make technical decisions all the time. There's just two 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 words at a, a principle that it's at the center of. Uh, how do we how do we do this thing? Multiple questions for days and days turn into weeks and months. How do we do this thing? What do I do here? What's the process? So two words: action bias. <laughs> What's the, the best idea? Oh no, I won't do it right now in case they stuff it up. You can always do, you can always do it. Again, the last thing you want to be is like, "Oh, I have to wait for them to come back to make a decision about it." I'm not sure. I need an email from the person. Action bias. Action bias simply means that if you need to make, if you need to make a a, a decision about how to do it, the best thing you can do is start. Right. Uh, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, it's it's possible to row it back if you get it wrong. Anyway, it's, it it goes on to what, it. It may not be perfect, and maybe two steps forward and one step back. No, but you need to. Think simply in terms of the process of how does how does the next individual thing need to be achieved? Action bias. So you're bringing so up. I, you're, I didn't have a perfect training program. Well, go and do an imperfect one. Right. <laughs>
1: You bring no, up a just... you bring up a, a good point though because I think that what's going to happen okay we're a couple of weeks away from the new year and a lot of people are going to want to start resolutions and then within weeks they're going to break those resolutions and so somebody was asking me how would I set up a thirty day challenge and if you you know once again you you don't know anything about eat to perform but we're kind of anti that kind of thing right we're more in the long term process and i said well what i would do is i would do an anti resolution challenge and the the idea being that the more rigid that you are the less likely you are to appreciate trial and error you know i <laughs> That. Yeah. Well, it's probably going to happen because usually I come up with these crazy ideas, and I I actually have the marketing savvy to pull it off. So, but I I really think that you know, when you look at dieting protocols, we had we had a researcher from the University of Minnesota, and she talked about willpower, and she talked about. Um, you know, people and their ability to stick to diets and the success rate of dieting and all these other types of things. And she said something that was really interesting. I think that uh, it was the takeaway from her discussion is that if you're Weight Watchers, really, when someone fails doing Weight Watchers, they never blame Weight Watchers. They never go, oh, I didn't do well on Weight Watchers, right? They go, I failed. And then they, they go, well, the only thing that ever worked for me was Weight Watchers. And I'm like, if you have to use Weight Watchers <laughs> twice, it didn't work for you, <laughs> right? And so that's what Tracy was saying was that she she was saying that their business model is people failing at diets because the, the, the emphasis, and you hear this a lot with fitness trainers and stuff like this, is when somebody doesn't have success, well, you did.